Genesis chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1. We're going to start a new sermon series this morning on the book of Genesis um, that will last us probably until sometime in, in February. Now, Genesis is a pretty big book. It's got 50 chapters. We're not going to be able to look at everything in kind of microscopic examination, but we're going to, what we're trying to do, the lens we're looking through as we open Genesis is we want to ask the question, what does this book teach us about God, right? This Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it's God's introduction to himself, describing who he is, and so we want to ask the question, what is God saying about himself as the story of Genesis unfolds? So we've, we're calling this Knowing God Through Genesis, and we're going to start where God starts at the very beginning. So please follow along with me in your Bible as I read. I'm going to read most of Genesis 1. I'll be doing a little skipping around, so just stay on your toes and follow me, and then we'll, we'll see what God has for us in this passage. This is God's word. Here's how it begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were above the under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Now verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, 
And there was morning the sixth day. Let's pray together again. Father, this, this is your perfect word. This book is living and active. This is you speaking to us this morning. And this chapter has been, it's been battled over so extensively that it can be hard to hear from you. And so I pray that you would help us to hear from you this morning, that we would hear what you have to say, that what it is that you want us to know about yourself as we behold your word, as we consider your creation. God, draw our attention to you and draw out worship from our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I know that some of you, when I said we're going to look at Genesis 1, your ears pricked up, you, you got your pen out, clicked it, you're ready to go. You thought, finally, we're going to get some answers. How old is the earth really? How long did God take to create it? What, is, what does Genesis 1 have to say about evolution? How are we going to put this all together? And I just feel like I have to start by saying, sorry. We are probably not going to answer all those questions. We're not going to answer most of them. Actually, you might leave disappointed. I just want to apologize up front. We, what, what's, what's, what's going on with Genesis 1 is, I think in part, the last 150 years or so, ever since Darwin published On the Origin of Species, everyone's been coming to Genesis 1 asking what it has to do with evolution. We've been asking, um, what, we, we've had this kind of feeling that we have to choose between science and Christianity. And so we come to Genesis 1 and Christians come asking, okay, now what can I see here that's going to help me disprove evolution? And, and skeptics come to Genesis 1 and they say, okay, now what's gonna, what can I see here that's going to let me dismiss Christianity just out of hand so I don't have to look anymore at it? Everyone comes at it thinking through the lens of science and evolution. And almost all of us, because we've grown up in this context, we come to Genesis 1 asking the wrong questions. We're asking when questions. When did God create the earth? How long did it take him? We're asking how questions. What did he, what did he use? Did he use evolution? Did he, did he not use evolution? We're asking when and how questions when what Genesis 1 was written to give us was answers to much more important questions like who and why. Moses, when God inspired him to write Genesis 1 3,000 years ago, the, the, the questions God's people were asking and the questions their neighbors were asking were not questions about when and how. They were questions about who and why. Why are we here? Why did God make us? Why is there something rather than nothing? Who made all this? Was it a lot of gods? Was it one God? Can we know the God who made the world? These are the questions that they were asking and those are the questions that God inspired Moses to write Genesis 1 to answer. And so I want to spend most of our time looking at what Genesis 1 is teaching, not asking questions that it wasn't written to teach. But that said, I know that for some of you, this question of how, how the Bible and science fit together or not, this is a big issue for you. Either it's an issue you're a believer, but it's an issue that kind of just sticks in your mind. It makes it hard for you to feel confident in your faith. Or maybe you're not a Christian, and this has always been kind of a stumbling block for you. I just don't know if I can take the Bible seriously when it starts this way. And so I want to say just two things about creation and science. And if there's something you have questions on, you just 
come down and find me afterwards and we can talk more about it. Uh, the first thing that I think is important to say is that is, there is a broad diversity among Christians of belief in the correct interpretation of Genesis 1. So among people who believe, as I do and as many of you do, that this is God's word without error, his perfect expression of his will, among people who believe that, you'll find everything from people who believe that, that the world was created in six 24-hour days, 6,000 years ago, to people who believe that God used evolution as the mechanism of making the world to positions in between, that that there are maybe gaps in Genesis 1, that there's a big gap of time between Genesis 1, verse 1, and verse 2, or maybe these days of creation were kind of separated by long periods where God did activity in rapid spurts, and then it kind of went on for a while. You'll find lots of positions, and the reason why is that there's, there's some ambiguity about what kind of writing Genesis 1 is. Now, if Genesis 1 was, if it was straight history, then the most natural way to read it would be that it's a literal creation week. But if it, was, if it was poetry, then it'd be natural to think that it was speaking metaphorically. But Genesis 1 is somewhere in between. It's, it's history, it's prose, it's not poetry, but it's stylized, right? It has this rhythm, it has a cadence to it. Where he said, and God said... And there was, and he saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning. It, it's almost like a song, right? That it's, it's true history, but there are parts of it that, that are hard to understand in kind of a literal sense. Like, just as one example, God creates light on the first day, and he creates the sun on the fourth day. So we need to make sure that when we're reading it, that we, we're not trying to force Genesis 1 to be a science textbook, or to try to make it to be newspaper reporting. We want to read it. God's word is without error, but we have to read it according to its intention, according to why God inspired Moses to write it. So if you're a Christian, it's important that you not, you not make kind of your answers to how and, and when God made the world kind of a litmus test for other Christians of whether they're faithful or not. That can sometimes happen, and it, it's really divisive in the body of Christ. And if you're not a Christian, and this, the, the idea for you that every Christian just dismisses evolution out of hand, wants nothing to do with science, if that's been a barrier for you considering Christianity, I hope you'll give an open ear. The second thing I want to say is that belief in creation and in God as the creator should make Christians more, not less, enthusiastic about scientific discovery. In Cambridge, at the Cavendish Laboratory, which is the Department of Physics, over the door to the lab says, is, is Psalm 111, verse 2 in the King James. It says, The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. Why? Why is it there at the Cambridge Physics Department? It's because science originated as a way of of learning about God through his works, a way of, of un- understanding God's marvels, what he's done. Uh, Isaac Newton, for example, he's one of the most influential scientists of all time. He was an Anglican Christian. He kept personal notebooks where he made notes on the Bible and biblical prophecy and church history. He didn't see any tension at all between seeking to know God in his word and seeking to know God in his works, in the things that he has made. 
So done rightly, science is one way we pursue wonder and awe and worship at the amazing brilliance of the God who made the world. If if the Bible's true, which we believe, then we we shouldn't fear science because science done well, true science is gonna affirm what we've found God has said in his word. So I know that's not nearly enough for some of you, but I hope you'll find me afterwards. I probably can't answer your question, but I might be able to direct you to a book about it. Um, but I get, what I want to be clear about is I'm not endorsing any position on whether God used evolution in creating the world. Okay, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just 35 years old. I, I need to do a lot more study before I can speak intelligently about that. I need to study the Bible more. I need to study the science more. And so I, I haven't come to a position, and I don't think I have to, to understand what God is saying in Genesis 1. Okay. Now that I've made half of you mad and the other half confused, we can get into what is Genesis 1 actually about. Not when and how, but why and especially who. Who is the God who made the world? We're going to see four truths in this passage about who God is. And the first is that God is supreme. So this is so striking to me and probably to you that the Bible begins this way. In the beginning, God In the beginning, God. God is the central character of this chapter of the Bible, of all of human history. God, the word God, appears 35 times between verse 1 of chapter 1 and verse 3 of chapter 2. 35 times in that creation week. Now, as we go through Genesis 1, you'll see that there's no question that humanity is the climax of creation. Humanity is the crown of what God has made. And yet, humanity is not the main character. God is the main character. He's the star of the show. And Moses tells us that he created the heavens and the earth. And this, this verb that Moses used in the Hebrew for created, it's not a verb that's ever used of people. It's only ever used of God. Now we talk about people creating, right? That, that we can, uh, people can create uh, works of art, create a, a new symphony, right? Or we can create new ways of doing things. We can create, we can design a house, right? We can Humans create in a sense, but what we do is not like what God does. What we do really is we just rearrange. We take things that God has made and we put them in new kind of configurations. We make them do new things, but we don't create. God creates out of nothing. He makes things exist that have never been before. And they exist simply because he wants them to. And everything God creates, he rules. Right? We In our society, you invent something, you hold the patent. It belongs to you, right? God holds the patent on everything. He rules everything. It belongs to him. Time and space and land and water, he rules it all. He rules all living things. He rules us. Now, if evolution were the whole story, if if we all just exist through a long series of cosmic accidents, then, then we can rule ourselves. We don't owe our existence to anyone. We belong to ourselves and we can do what we want. But if we were created, if we were made, if we are somebody else's artwork, somebody else's invention, then we're not our own. We're not free to live however we want to live. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we have an owner. We have a ruler. We have a king. And Genesis 1 depicts God as a king, right? His word is law. What he says happens. Let there be light and there was. And he says, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And it was so. God is so overwhelmingly supreme that just his word, in his word, 
there's power enough to make things exist that were never there before. I like to think, I like to think of God in this passage as a great, I'm kind of mixing the metaphor here, as a great conductor. Okay, you look at Genesis 1 verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's just this, this kind of moment of anticipation, almost held breath. Like the silence when a conductor comes to the podium and raises his baton, everything goes quiet, and it's about to begin, right? And then God, in this passage, just begins pointing to all the parts of creation, like parts of an orchestra, just bringing them in. Heavens, earth, light, right? Seas, earth. He brings everything in. Everything comes in and joins this, this harmony of God's creation. Now, in, in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, in The Magician's Nephew, these children from earth stumble into Narnia at the very moment of its creation, before there's anything there. It's, there's just total darkness. And then in the darkness, they hear a single voice singing the most beautiful song that they had ever heard. And this is what Lewis says. He says, Then two wonders happened at the same moment. One was that the voice was suddenly joined by other voices, more voices than you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but far higher up the scale, cold, tingling, silvery voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. The new stars and the new voices began at exactly the same time. If you had seen and heard it, as Diggory did, you would have felt quite certain that it was the stars themselves which were singing and that it was the first voice, the deep one, which had made them appear and made them sing. That's it. The impression Genesis 1 makes on us is of this beauty and this harmony that God is conducting, that he's bringing into existence. This, this beauty and harmony in which everything responds to God's voice. God is supreme. And secondly, God is purposeful. So, so Moses structures Genesis 1 as a work week. Six days of work and one day of rest. And God goes to work purposefully. You don't see God in Genesis 1 saying, now I wonder what will happen if I do this. Or let's, let's just try this and see how it goes. He, he begins on the first day and he methodically creates the world according, there's no question that he's working according to a plan, right? In, in verse 2 it says, the earth was without form and void. So the earth had no form, it had no structure. And it was void, it was empty, there was nothing there. And so what does God do? He spends three days making form. Three days creating structure. He separates light from darkness. He separates the waters below from the waters above. He makes heaven. He spends the third day separating land from water. He creates the structure of the world. He makes form. It was formless, now it has form. It's still empty, so then he spends three days filling it up. He puts lights in the heavens. He puts fish in the seas and birds in the sky. On the sixth day, he, he makes land animals. And then as the crown of creation, humanity. And at the, on that sixth day, at the climax of creation, we discover two things. Two things about the purpose of God working through that week. One is that, in a sense, everything was made for us. That, that God says, he says this to the humans, in a sense, this is your world. Fill it. Subdue it. Have dominion over it. He says, I've made all this for you. Look, I made food for you. These trees, they've got fruit. You can eat them. This is for you. 
So on the one hand, creation is for us, and another, on the other hand, we are for creation. God has a purpose for that too, that, that we're supposed to tend creation, care for creation. We're not supposed to ruin creation, but we, we have dominion. We're kings over it in, this, in the way that God would want us to be, in the way that God is. Everything this God does is purposeful. He makes light and dark so there can be day and night, so we can have time. Right? He gives the sun and the moon, it says, for signs and seasons, so we can mark the passage of months and years, so we can have holidays and festivals, so we can have Christmas, right? That's how we tell the time passing. He makes plants with fruit so we can eat them and enjoy them. And did you notice how often God names things, right? He says, I'm going to call the dark night. I'm going to call the light day. I'm going to call the expanse heaven. I call the waters seas. God tells everything what it is and what it's for. So what is Genesis 1 saying? Everything God made has a name and a purpose. Everything is for something, including you. Your identity, your purpose, your calling, your name, those aren't things you invent for yourselves. They're something you receive. They're given by God. Now for some of you, I hope that comes as very good news because that means that your value does not depend on what people think or what you think of your beauty, or your intelligence, or your success, or your marital status, that's not where your identity comes from. You have a name, an identity from God. You are made in his image. Apart from sin, you are very good. But it also means this. It also means that we don't get to decide for ourselves what our lives should be about. We don't get to decide the definition of right and wrong, or the measure of success. If evolution were the whole story, if we were just accidents, if, if we're just lucky, then life has no purpose except what we bring to it. Our existence doesn't mean anything. We're not here for anything. There's no right or wrong except what we decide, so let's just, let's just do what feels good, right? There's, there's no measuring stick for our lives. There's nothing we're supposed to accomplish, so let's just do what, what serves us. But if there's a purposeful God behind the universe— then there is a measuring stick. You're for something. You can succeed at life or fail. You can live rightly or wrongly. If you don't believe that there's a God, I can understand why that's convenient. But is it true? Can you really bring yourself to believe that life has no meaning, no purpose, no right or wrong way? Do you have that much faith? Genesis 1 depicts a world made by a purposeful God who has a purpose for us. And that's, that's tied to the third truth about God. So the third truth is that God is personal. Is it, it just strikes you. Isn't it striking as you read Genesis 1 that everything God does, he does by speaking. He's, he's a speaking God. He's a God who makes himself known. He's not a something. He's a someone. He can be known. He wants to be known. As soon as he created humans, he spoke to them. Right? Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God wants us to know him. It's why we're here. He made us for himself. But we have to be careful there. When we say that God made us for himself, it could sound almost a little bit, if we're not careful, like God needed us. Like God was, he was lonely he didn't have anyone to talk to, and so he said, well, I'm, I'm going to make somebody so I have a playmate. And that's not how God created the world. That's not why God created it. God has never been lonely. 
God has never been alone. And we can see that in Genesis 1. There's just, there are hints here of something that only becomes clear later, but I want you to see that it's here from the beginning. Look at verse 2 again. The end of verse 2 says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, hovering, that word that, that Moses uses there for hovering, it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament of a mother bird kind of fluttering protectively over her babies. So you could think, you could read that and think, oh, the Spirit of God, that's just the power of God, that's just sort of a way of describing God at work, but it's, it's, it's personal, isn't it? It's, the Spirit is fluttering, hovering over the waters, getting ready to do something, right? And we said before, we said before about God's Word, that God's Word, it has a power of its own. God's Word is so powerful that it just creates things out of nothing, Right? And so we could just think, well, that's just God's voice. It's just, it's just God speaking. But this is what the Apostle John tells us in his gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And that's what we saw, right? Nothing was made apart from God's Word. And this is what John tells us. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So the Word is the Son. So right here in Genesis 1, we already have this reality that we discover later that, that God, from the beginning, he was never alone because God is a trinity. He's three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. When he, when he creates humanity, in verse 26, he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. God from eternity past has always been a community of love. Three persons eternally loving and honoring and serving one another. So God didn't create us because he needed something. He didn't create us to get something. He didn't create us because he was lonely and only we could fulfill the whole in his heart. He created us because he was so full of love that he wanted more people to share it with. He wanted to widen the circle and welcome humanity in. Now, we've, we've probably all seen, we've been around people who maybe have had kids because they, they felt like they needed it, right? They, maybe their marriage was struggling and they felt like, well, if we have a child, that's going to fix things. It's going gonna, it's gonna to draw us together. Or, or maybe they were lonely and unfulfilled and they felt like, well, having a child, well, it'll, it'll give me love and it'll give me purpose. And that never ends well does it? That's, that is way too much for a child to bear, to be needed in that way. How should it be? It should be that a husband and a wife, they're just so full of love for one another. Just, they just, they don't, they want, they're just overflowing. They need more places for their love to spill. So they welcome children in, either through birth or through adoption, just so that there's, there's more people enjoying the love, more people in the community, more people in. It just, it multiplies their joy to have more to love. And that's God. He didn't need us. He wants us. He wants to welcome us in to the circle of his love. Now, I know the Trinity, that is something, you, you can't put a picture in your brain of that, right? That is hard to understand. But what it means is, this God, he didn't create you because he needs you. He created you because he loves you. And he wants to welcome you into the love that he's been enjoying among himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, forever. He's, he's inviting you into the song. He's inviting you into the dance. A personal God wants to be known by you. And finally, the last thing it tells us is that God is good. 
This is what God pronounces over his creation again and again. He says, this is good. This is good. This is very good. The goodness of creation reflects the goodness of its creator. Now, I have, until I came to Sunrise, I had never been in a community of people that travel as much as you people do. And I know that part of that is because you live on this, you're, you're locked in here on an island. If you want to see anything at all, you've got to get on an airplane. But this, you are traveling people. Adam and Paula and I, every week we're in the office, we're trying to figure out who's here on the weekend. So we'll, you know, we're saying, is, is John around this week? No, no, John is in the rainforest. Okay, well, is, is Susie here? No, Susie is touring the American West in an RV, seeing all the national parks. Okay, well, but where's Dan? Surely Dan can help. No, no, Dan is skiing in the Alps, right? Why, why do you go to these places? You don't just do it, I hope, to take a selfie. You don't, you don't do it just to get a pin in a map to show that you were there. You go to these places because they fill you with awe, because they capture you with their beauty, because they, they take you out of your life. Just for a moment, you forget yourself and you get lost in the splendor. These things are preaching to you. They're singing to you about the beauty and the goodness of their maker. He's good. Now, another aspect of his goodness this talks about, one of the ways in which Genesis 1 stands out from the other creation stories of its time is that often in those creation stories, humanity is created almost as an afterthought as slaves. So the gods, the gods are sitting around and they're like, oh, we're just so tired of doing all our own work and getting all our own food. I know. We're gonna, let's create humanity. They can do the work. They can make the food. They can just feed us. They can just bring it to our temples and then we can just sit around and just take it easy. Right? We can just take forever off of work. They create humanity as slaves. They create humanity to serve them. But what, what does Genesis 1 say? How does, what does God say when he creates humanity? He creates humanity and he says, I'm going to feed you. I've made all this for you. He didn't create so that we would do something for him. He created and immediately he was serving us. He was providing for us. He was giving us this beautiful world to live in. He doesn't make us slaves. He makes us lords and ladies over creation, ruling it, having dominion. This is not a distant, selfish God. This is a warm, intimate God, a loving, generous God. God is good. So Genesis 1, it sets the stage for history. A supreme, purposeful, personal, good God made a beautiful, fertile, delightful world as a home, not just for animals and fish and birds, but for humanity, for a community that he would welcome into his love a community he would welcome into his work. And the reason Genesis 1 is in our Bibles is to show us what was and what could have been and what should have been, but not what is, right? This is not where we live anymore. God made this beautiful world where everything did just what it was told, right? The oceans stayed back from the land. The earth brought forth good things to eat, And men and women, we tended the earth, we loved one another, but where do we actually live? Where do we live now? We live in a world where the the ocean doesn't stay back from the land. It washes in through hurricanes and tsunamis. We live in a world where the earth refuses to give its food. We have droughts and famine. Humanity abuses and exploits the earth. This community of love is now fractured with violence and hatred. What happened? Well, in Genesis 1... Everything obeyed God's voice. 
Everything did exactly what God said. And that continued for a while, everything obeying God's voice, until something didn't. What didn't? It was us, right? There was a time when God said, you can eat of any tree in the garden except this one. And Adam and Eve ate the one thing they weren't allowed to eat. And it it fractured the perfection of the world. It wasn't the ocean that refused God. It wasn't the animals that rejected him. We decided that we wanted to be supreme. We wanted to define our own purpose. We wanted to say what was good for us. We wanted to be the king. And God's response to that, to that rebellion, was judgment. Now, one of the things you'll notice as, as we go through Genesis, as you read the Old Testament, that the way God's judgment shows itself is, is you could call it decreation. He undoes part of what he did in the creation week, right? So in creation, he made this, this land that, that put forth all these good things to eat. And then when Adam and Eve disobeyed, what did he do? He cursed the ground and said, now it's going to make thorns and thistles. Now you're going to eat of it by the sweat of your brow. He, he just, he undid creation a little bit, right? Or, or in the story of Noah, the earth was full of violence, right? And so God's judgment came and what did he did? He undid the separation of the waters. He undid the separation of the land from the water. He flooded the world. He decreated the world in his judgment because of our sin. And the ultimate judgment, the ultimate decreation is our death. We get cast out of the love of God, cast out of his fellowship, and eventually we turn back to dust. We go back into the earth. So we're living, all of us, we're living under the judgment of God. And if there's any hope of getting back to Genesis 1, back to this beauty and harmony and back to being in the love of God, it's going to have to come from God. We need God to do a new creation. And that's exactly what he's begun to do. Remember that, um, remember that before God did his work, do you remember what was, he said was, was over the face of the deep? It was darkness, right? Part of his creation was light. He brought light into the world. Darkness is is an expression of decreation. It's experience of judgment. And where do we see darkness in the New Testament? Do you remember where the gospel writers tell us that darkness was over the land? It was when Jesus hung on the cross. Jesus on the cross was, he was experiencing the judgment of God. Jesus on the cross was being decreated so we could be recreated. He was being cast out of the love of God so that we could be brought in. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If we trust in Jesus, we're made new, we're restored into intimate fellowship with God. We we begin to become again what we were before sin ruined the world. If we trust in Jesus, we are brought back into fellowship with God. He becomes our father and king again, and we receive his love and blessing. He says over us again, because of my son, you are very good. I love you and welcome you. And that's not all. Paul tells us in Colossians, he says, In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God didn't just send Jesus to reconcile us to himself, but to reconcile all things to himself, to make the world new. Someday when Jesus comes back, The world is going to be pristine and beautiful again, just the way it was 
in Genesis 1. The God who made the world through his word is remaking it through his son. He will forgive and reconcile to himself anyone who trusts in him. And one day he will restore the whole world to the beauty of Genesis 1. Do you want to know the God who made the world? The God who is supreme and purposeful and personal and good. He invites you to know him through trusting in his son. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we worship you as the God who made all things from nothing. The God who, whose work cannot be surpassed, whose work cannot be thwarted. The God who, who is so overflowing in power that you could make things just by speaking and so overflowing in love that you made this world for us. You, you have no use for a physical world, your spirit, and yet you made this world for us in all of its beauty and all of its goodness as a stage on which the story of history could happen, as a place in which we could know you and love you and trust you and be used by you. God, we, we want to see you as you are. We want to know you as you are. We know that we have strayed from you in sin, but we also believe that through Jesus we can come home, that we can belong to you, we can be welcomed into your love, we can have fellowship with you and with one another. And I pray, Father, that you would help us, that you would help us not to live for ourselves, but to live for you not to make our own names and purposes, but to to respond to how you've made us and to have the joy of being in your work and your love. So please help us to live as new creations, as what we are in Christ. And through us, God, show your work to the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.